gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIO Security Insider podcast and we have joining us once again today, Chris Delaney, the ASIO Industrial Relations Representative. Chris, how are you? Uh, good, thanks, John. Yourself? Very well, thank you. And uh, as we're in the beginning of the new year, this is typically a time that many organisations tend to look at bringing on new hires or a lot of people tend to move jobs and, and uh, take up new contracts. And I believe that employment contracts are something that we're discussing today because there have been a few important changes. Yes, uh, thanks, John. Uh, look, over the past year or so, and more recently, there have been some significant changes in industrial laws. Uh, many of those changes have affected or can affect the contract of employment. So it's probably timely that employers review their contracts, uh, their employment contracts, uh, to ensure compliance. Okay. So what sorts of changes are we talking about? There's been a lot. Uh, some of the changes that uh, might require a variation to the contract include changes to fixed-term contracts, for instance, uh, they're restricted now to two years in most circumstances. There are rules underneath that. Uh, casual definitions, uh, ensuring that arrangements are clear and unambiguous in your contract of employment is going to be very, very important, particularly over the next 12 months. Uh, recent uh, changes to pay secrecy clauses uh, have come in. They're outlawed now, and you cannot have a pay secrecy clause in your employment contract. If you've got one, you've got to write it out of it. Uh, if you're making a contract, you can't have it in. There have been changes to flexibility requests and that it's, it's broadened the, the number of uh, categories of workers who can apply for flexibility. And that may be a, uh, uh, something that needs to be dealt with in a contract of employment as well. And, you know, post-COVID, working from home, uh, there are issues now about uh, attached to flexibility, whether people should be able to work from home more often now or less often, uh, how to get people back to the workplace is a big issue and that needs to be dealt with as well. And there are some changes to uh, parental leave and the provisions for both partners in parental leave. Now, you may not want to have that in your contract of employment, but if you've got it now, you're going to need to make some changes to it. So, as I said earlier, time to review, time to decide what's included, what's excluded, and what's uh, what needs clarification. Okay. Well, there's a fair bit there to sort of go through and cover. Um, but before we sort of look at what some of those changes may or may not be, I guess the most immediate question that leaps to mind is, do employers really need written contracts? I mean, we... It would seem to me that they do, but we often see people relying on verbal contracts or agreements, gentlemen's agreements, as they were once referred to. Uh, you know, how important is the written contract? Well, if I can be glib, uh, you know, a verbal contract's not worth the paper it's written on, quite frankly. Uh, you know, a written contract is preferable because if it's properly drafted and includes all of the essential clauses, it reduces the opportunity for confusion and argument some way down the track. You know, I wasn't required to do this or, uh, you know, there's always some confusion if, the, if it's not written. If it is written, it needs to be written very clearly so that you avoid that con confusion. Yep. But virtually at law, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. 
Yeah. Now, you mentioned before things like secrecy clauses and, and new things that have come in that we're not allowed to put in contracts. But obviously that raises the question, well, what should be in a contract? Well, simple things like the name of the award or the enterprise agreement that's, that covers the employee. You just need the name. You don't need all of the detail about it because it, while it doesn't form part of the contract of employment, it sits alongside it. We should put in what the position or the title is or if it's an award-covered employee, the level or grading that the employee is, is, uh, is uh, performing. The location of the workplace is very important. Notice of termination is important. Uh, I'll give you an example. Recently, we had somebody who had written into the contract six weeks' notice. Yep. Now, the minimum requirements of law wouldn't take them that far. But um, so it, it made it difficult on both the employer and the employee. Uh, whether it's full-time, part-time, casual or fixed term is important. How remuneration is uh, is uh, dealt with in the uh, in the contract, confidentiality or sometimes called a non-disclosure clause, very important in a contract of employment. In certain, for certain jobs, restriction of trade, post restrictions after employment ceases. Uh, if you're doing a salary, you might want an offset clause. Uh, of course, hours of work, including shift work, public holidays, overtime, these are all important because there have been changes to legislation on whether we can ask somebody to work public holidays and overtime. Uh, leave entitlements can go into the contract of employment and generally the name of or the title of the direct report, the manager, supervisor, whoever it might be. They're the essentials. Sure. Now, this next question may be one that you can answer or it may not. I don't know. It might be considered legal advice. So if it's not something we can discuss, then we can just defer it and move on. But I guess in talking about what needs to be in contracts, do you have any advice for employers on how not to get hung with their own contract? Because we often hear people sort of saying, you know, oh, I'm not doing that. That's not part of my contract or whatever it may be. Is there any sort of open-ended stuff there that we can look at or? Yeah, look, I, I think it's uh, it's worth sort of understanding that things like policies and procedures, they're dynamic. Position descriptions are dynamic as well. They should sit alongside the contract of employment and they will change from time to time. And provided that the employer um, uh, 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 can communicates that to the employees on a regular basis whenever there's any change and provided that it's reasonable and lawful, uh, the changes to those things, uh, that should sit outside the contract of employment. So as a, for instance, you might have a disciplinary clause in your contract of employment. I would recommend you don't. Right. But if you did have a disciplinary clause in your contract of employment and you, the employer, failed to follow that to the letter, then you can be accused of breach of contract and the dismissal would probably be deemed to be unfair. So you're better off to have a disciplinary policy that sits alongside but not part of the contract, the pure contract of employment. 
Right. But, you know, uh, awards will cover things like uh, hours of work, breaks, minimum pay, those sorts of things. Um, if we're looking at full-time or part-time or casual as a clause in the in the agreement, uh, in the uh, contract of employment, uh, you might need to understand that um, some of those arrangements are quite different from others. For instance, a part-time employee uh, will be re- you'll be required in the contract to say what what days they work, what what their start and finishing times are in writing, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, if it's a casual employee, you want to ensure that there's that the twenty five percent casual loading is explained, and you'll want to ensure that there is no a guarantee of continued employment under casual arrangements. So that's important. So these are more things that we need to be focused on within the contract itself. Within the contract, yep. yeah. Okay. You know, I mentioned earlier location of uh, of the workplace. Well, we should be saying what our what our arrangement is. Is there a workplace that people have to be at all of the time? Uh, is it a hybrid arrangement where employees might uh, join, uh, come to the workplace two or three days a week or whatever it might be? what happens with the flexibility provisions of the Fair Work Act when we're, when we're considering whether somebody can or can't work from home? Are there going to be KPIs? Are there going to be rules around that? And you'll have a policy alongside that as well. Okay. So um, there, there are some of the things. The restraint clause, of course, as I mentioned before, um, you know, it, it, it stops an employee from engaging in conduct that's adverse or inconsistent with the with the employer's interests. Now, whether whether or not uh, they work uh, will be dependent on how well they're written and what the circumstances are behind all of that. Termination of employment, there are statutory provisions on that, and we recommend that you stay with the minimum for those statutory uh, arrangements. That non-disclosure and confidentiality, I think, is extremely important. Um, this type of arrangement outlines the information that is confidential and proprietary to the employer. It helps ensure that property and information, uh, you know, um, are uh, that belong to the employer can't be used or disclosed to a third party for any reason. Um, and look, I've got. A lot more that I'm saying in the ASIAL Insider magazine in January that will give you a more comprehensive view on what what we're talking about in that area. Yep. Again, something that you hear coming up often in discussion around employment contracts and and if you can't answer or you or there's not enough time within the scope of this podcast to answer, that's fine. But one of the more common clauses in contracts we often hear about are non-compete. Um, you know, terms if someone's, you know, finishes up a period of employment or whatever the case may be. And often a lot of the discussion we hear around non-compete clauses is that they're quite literally not worth the paper that they're written on. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts around non-compete, non-compete clauses in contracts? Yeah, look, uh, they're important, but, but we have to really understand that a court will decide on what's a fair go all round. So if you've got an alarm installer or even a security guard, let's take a security guard. A security guard, you wouldn't have a non-compete clause there. 
he should be able to go or she should be able to go and work for anybody else and, and be free to do so. Um, you wouldn't want them taking any confidential information with them, and that's part of that confidentiality clause that we might have <clears throat> or a non-disclosure, but a restraint is different. Yeah, You might not want somebody to um, steal your clients or even your employees after they leave and maybe set up their own business. Yep. That kind of restraint will have some restrictions on it. It might be a geographical restriction, a time frame, whatever. Um, so, you know, poaching employees, setting up your own business, going into business with somebody else or uh, those sorts of things uh, are protected in a restraint clause, but they will go down to the wire with, uh, with uh, a court determining what's fair and reasonable on both parties. Yeah, because it seems to me what th- those two terms, fair and reasonable, are both distinct and different. I mean, it's reasonable to expect that I can't take a list of your contacts to another business as a an incentive for them to employ me, but it's not fair to say if my only skill set is selling and installing alarm systems that I'm not allowed to make money working for anyone else doing that because that's restricting my ability to create income. Yeah, and it it but it also might depend on if you're in a small country town and there's only two people doing business. Yeah, then the restriction might be reasonable, um, but it might also not be fair because the opportunities for employment will only exist between those two groups. Yeah. So, uh, and, and and but it also might come down to the timing. You know, is it a three month restriction, a six month, a twelve month restriction? Those things will all be determined by a court. Even if you've got something written, the court will decide, well, you've stopped this person from earning a living uh, or you've you've taken away um, somebody's IP uh, and we're going to we're going to restrict you from doing that. Yeah. So it will all come down in the end to what is fair and reasonable in the view of a court. Sure. Which is a good segue into my next question, which is we've spoken about some of the things that we need to include in contracts. What are the sorts of things that we should be avoiding putting into contracts? And you mentioned, uh, you know, well, uh, disciplinary clauses before. Yeah. Well, a disciplinary clause, you don't want to be hoisted on your own petard. You don't want to, you don't want to create a problem for yourself. You want to be able to do things uh, reasonably. Uh, Disciplinary thing issues, I would have that outside of the contract as a policy perhaps, but you may not even want to have a policy. You might just want to look at what happens at law and and follow the directions that Fair Work Commissions have put out from time to time. But you, you, you can't put anything in your contract of employment that is not lawful. You can't have a discriminatory clause in there. You can't have something to do with the sexuality of people and all of those sorts of things. Give me an example uh, of what you mean by a discriminatory clause. Uh, well, you, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't have something in your contract of employment that says that uh, you can't get married, right? Uh, or you can't have children, or um, you know, you've got to use the male toilet or whatever it might be. Yeah, okay. You can't use that, those sorts of things. You can't say we only employ white people um, 
or black people or whatever. So you you, you can't discriminate. Have a clause in there that breaches discrimination laws, uh, and you should invo- avoid anything that's sort of ambiguous or vague or contradictory. And look, there's a lot more traps uh, in in that. Um, the list of things that you shouldn't have in a contract of employment is probably a lot longer than the list that you should have. But yep. nothing that's unlawful and nothing that's going to come back to bite you at some point in the future as an employer. What about, though, there are certain situations we see arising um, – and I won't mention them by name because there's no need to, but there are some companies that may build a unique point of difference by saying, for example, we are a female-only security company or we are a First Nations specialist security personnel provider. So they're by their very nature going to look at primarily hiring First Nations people or females. Take the female one, for example. It might be... You know, we hire females because we provide security personnel that can vet female uh, toilets and events and all the rest of it. They by themselves are naturally not going to be set up or looking to hire males. So how does that discriminatory thing work in that kind of environment if you don't want to run afoul of it? I think I think we're we're getting into legal advice. Ah, there, okay. Yep. Okay. I'm Fair enough. Not to do oh, that. Sorry, but, that's just my own look, curiosity. There are, there are companies around that are that are uh, all-female security companies. We had one recent, uh, I don't know whether they're still going or not, called Charlie's Angels, believe yep. it or not. Um, yep. Currently, uh, Bree's there's, firm. There's no, problem, there's no problem with that if it's done for the right reasons. Yep. Okay. All right. Um, so I think you also mentioned earlier national employment standards a couple of times. How do they fit into the contract of employment? Well, <clears throat> when we look at, the entire contract of employment. We've got the contract itself between the employer and the employee. We've got legislation like the Fair Work Act and anti-discrimination and and other legislation that impinges on what employers can and cannot do. Um, and part of the Fair Work Act are the national employment standards. And there are 11 minimum standards that exist in the Fair Work uh, national employment standards. So you've got things like uh, a maximum of 38 ordinary hours in a week, um, leave provisions, uh, parental leave pr- provisions. Uh, uh, there's a, a whole range right through that 11, including uh, providing your employee with a fair work information statement and there are two or three of them now. There's one for a permanent and part, permanent part-time employees, an information statement for casuals, an information statement for fixed term. So you need to know that whenever you do employ somebody, you meet those minimum standards, you apply the award provisions, excuse me, <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, you understand your legislative requirements. So you've got the legislation, the award, the contract, the NES. Okay. Now, I'm going to flatter myself into believing that there might be people listening to this, uh, you know, a lot of small to medium-sized businesses, whether they be, you know, security providers or systems installers or systems integrators, whatever it may be, that think, 
we're a small business. We can't afford to go out and pay high cost lawyers to make all these contracts up for us. You know, it's just too onerous and and too cost prohibitive. Are there boilerplate type templates that ASIL has available to help organisations with this sort of thing? Yeah, ASIL has templates for most of the uh, employment types that exist in the security industry. We write them specifically for the industry. Um, We don't charge for them, so they're free. As part Uh, of your membership or free in general? No, free free as part of the membership. Yeah, Um, okay. You know, we're a membership organisation, so yep. mem- members first. Uh, if they uh, if they come to us and ask us about that, uh, in my situation, I will ask them a number of questions, uh, try to assess whether there needs, needs to be any specific changes. So we can do, um, if you like, a bespoke service, provided that it's not too, too uh, intricate. Yeah, uh, but we do that. We do that for our members uh, all the time. Yeah, because it seems to me to refer back to your point at the beginning of this conversation. You know, if you were to use a loose analogy, having a good, well-crafted employment contract is the equivalent of building a fence at the top of the hill rather than putting an ambulance at the bottom of the hill. That's a, a good way of putting it. But you know, we look at it this way: if we can help our membership be more professional, they get more work, they stay safe in terms of their relationships with employees, uh, and it benefits everybody. Yeah. And I imagine if you're going after any size of reasonable contract as part of their due diligence, the first one of the first things they're going to want to do is look at all of your paperwork and make sure you've got all your ducks in a row, which is where these employment contracts become even more important. Yeah, they become part of the part of the whole solution. Um, ASIL members, big or small, have access to a uh, a small business uh, human resources um, handbook uh, that provides a whole lot of stuff well beyond just the contracts of employment uh, that that help them run their business. And of course, they've got. Uh, They've got the workplace relations service that comes with ASIL membership uh, that they can rely on by picking up the phone or sending an email or, or whatever they need to do. Yeah. Get the ASIL app. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That, that helps. That information will be available through the app. Um, read the magazine. All of those things uh, are valuable for ASIL members. Yeah, and keep an eye on those resources because do – I imagine from time to time that like with the whole point of this podcast, just because you wrote an employment contract five years ago for a group of employees doesn't mean that there is not going to be a point in the future at which those contracts need to be reviewed and updated. Is that correct? And and to that point, for how long should an employment contract generally be written? Look, an employment contract uh – might have been written 15 years ago and is still valid to a certain extent today. But where there are changes in your legal responsibilities that affect that contract, you should be reviewing it. Yeah. So, And if the employment relationship changes to some extent, uh, you might need to review it. I mean, somebody become, gets into a higher level of work or a different uh, changes 
jobs within the same organisation, you might want to either have a letter that describes what the differences are or change the contract of employment. Yeah. Okay, Chris. Well, look, if people want to find out more about any of this or get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? Well, with, contact with me. It's ir at azil.com.au uh, or um, you can call me on 0412-124-147 or contact ASIL. Uh, I haven't got their, their 1300 number in front of me at the moment. But uh, any way of getting in contact through ASIL to me, it'll always come to me. Yep, and of course, don't forget, you can visit the ASIAL website at www.asial.com.au where you will find all the information Chris has referred to along with this and all the other podcasts in the series, which are now just over 100. Uh, And you can also find these podcasts on Blurberry, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play and all the other great places that you find podcasts. Chris, thanks once again and we look forward to speaking to you again next time.